Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Conlon with Becker's Hospital Review. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Robin Voss, Field Director for Disease-Specific Care at the Joint Commission, to discuss some of the challenges in orthopedic care. Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. So let's dive into our discussion. I know, Robin, coming from the Joint Commission and obviously as a nurse with a wealth of experience in, in orthopedic care, what do you see as the most overarching challenges in orthopedic and spine care today? Wow, Alan, that's an excellent question. There are several challenges in orthopedics and spine. One of the primary and probably one of the very basic areas of challenge is standardization. This is a huge challenge because surgeons have always been able to do things their own way with their own preferences. Uh, and so one of the best ways to start working towards standardization is to look at the most current clinical practice guidelines for the specific disease process a team is working on, examples, total joints, spine, fractured hips, and then really look at those clinical practice guidelines for orthopedic and spine. And, and certainly some of the organizations they should look to would be those that focus on orthopedic care, like the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the North American Spine Society, and the National Association of Orthopedic Nurses. And if you're wondering why clinical practice guidelines are so important, it's because there are recommendations on how we in healthcare should care for people with these specific disease conditions. They're recommendations based on the best available evidence and science. And if we utilize these recommendations, then we have the potential to reduce unwarranted uh, practice variation and to improve healthcare quality and safety. So really one of the first steps of this standardization journey would be to pick a team of people, uh, whether it be the orthopedics or the spine team, uh, to really review the clinical practice guidelines, then have that group have a discussion on how they can utilize these guidelines to standardize their order sets, protocols, and pathways. And when I say the team should have a discussion I mean, they really need to talk about these best practices and how these recommend, recommended practices impact the care that they, as a group of surgeons and staff, actually impacts the orthopedic patients that they're caring for. Then they move to standardized care based on the decisions that that team makes. And as always, they'll need to personalize care based on the patient's individual needs and comorbidities. However, in general, the care should be the same unless there's a specific patient need. Because remember, the team has already decided what best practice should look like for this disease process. And I'm an OR nurse. Uh, I spent 21 years in orthopedics in the OR, and I can tell you this goes as much for the OR as it does for pre-op and post-op care. Sometimes we forget about the intraoperative standardization. It's much easier and safer for the patient if all surgeons are using the same equipment and same implants. The more systems that we, the OR team, have to remember, the more likely there is to be a mistake or a delay. And the teams will be faster and much more efficient if the surgeons all standardize. And a lot of times we see the team needs to take baby steps towards standardization, but true robust standardization in the pre-op, intra-op, post-op, 
and post-discharge phases, that's what gets us to best practice, to the highest quality and to safety in the care that we're providing, which is why standardization in orthopedics and spine is so very important. Got it. Thank you for, for laying that all out for us, Robin. So obviously, in terms of some of those benefits you mentioned for the patient, it sounds like it's safer and more effective if, if all surgeons are using the same equipment implants. The fewer systems the OR has, obviously there's less likelihood for a potential delay or a mistake. And of course, if a group or practice of surgeons is standardizing procedures, they're likely to become more time efficient and potentially more cost efficient too. Is that correct? Absolutely. We definitely see that it will be more cost effective as you standardize and decrease not just equipment, but dressings and, you know, things even on the floor that you would be using as far as uh, post-op equipment as well. Got it. Thank you, Robin. And then following on from that, let's address another challenge that we often hear about in orthopedics and spine surgery. Can you talk about the difference between pre-optimization and pre-operative clearance? Wow, this is really another great topic for orthopedic and spine care because, as I said, 21 years in the OR, an older nurse, pre-op clearance is an old term we used for surgery a long time ago. Pre-op clearance was basically where a surgeon sent a patient to their primary care physician, the physician saw the patient, and then sent a note back to the surgeon stating that they'd seen the patient and they were clear to have surgery. This note usually summarized the current and past medical conditions for the patient. However, the purpose of the pre-op evaluation is not to just clear the patient for surgery, surgery, but rather to evaluate and, if necessary, implement measures to prepare higher-risk patients for surgery. So true patient optimization can help to decrease the length of stay, minimize postponed and cancel surgeries, as well as improve patient outcomes, including decreasing the risk of infections. And to effectively provide this consultative service, the provider should understand the risk associated with the particular type of surgery that's planned and relate this risk to the patient's underlying acute and chronic medical problems. The complete consultation should include recommendations for evaluation and treatment, including prophylactic therapies to minimize the preoperative risk. And ideally, the patient should be assessed several weeks before surgery. This time frame is necessary in case the patient needs interventions to ensure that they are totally optimized for the surgery. Yeah, so, so Robin, you mentioned the interventions there. Can you give me a little bit of insight into the specific type of interventions that you're talking about in relation to spine and orthopedics? Sure. Well, we need to be looking for non-modifiable risk factors is one thing. So specifically for ortho and spine surgery, do they have metal sensitivity or metal allergies? This is very important to our patient population. And if they've ever had a uh, orthopedic surgery before, had they have, had, you know, had they had complications with that? Does the patient have any progressive neurologic diseases? And we have to think about how that would impact this planned surgery. And then inflammatory arthritis certainly impacts um, a lot of these surgeries. 
But then we want to look also at the modifiable risk factors. So BMIs greater than 40, um, they may need to be referred to a bariatric program uh, and possibly to a nutritionist as well. If they've got diabetes, if their A1C is uh, seven or over, then we definitely want to make sure that that patient gets optimized. Some physicians look at albumins as well. With a 3.5, they want a nutritionist consult. Um, some folks are looking at vitamin D levels. And of course, we've got to look at things like anticoagulation. Do they have a history of DVT or PE? Do they have a history of MRSA? And is there a current open wound or do they have a history of issues with wound healing? And then tobacco use or abuse is really important in this patient population. Uh, we want to see these patients um, get uh, in a smoking cessation uh, program. And some programs actually do nicotine monitoring. The patient needs to be assessed for obstructive sleep apnea. These patients um, may need a study beforehand. And of course, we've got to have time to be able to get equipment if they need that. Remember, we're moving many of these procedures to the outpatient setting. So we're sending these patients home with medications that have the potential to decrease their respirations. And there's no one there monitoring that patient. So obstructive sleep apnea can be a real problem for these patients postoperatively. If they've got any dental issues, of course, we need them to be evaluated and managed by their dentist. And so there's just so many important things that um, we want to really ensure these patients are truly optimized. And it's just so very different from just having that patient cleared. Got it. So, so it sounds like providers really need to be doing their due diligence in terms of evaluating patients several weeks before surgery, as you said, looking at not just a modifiable, modifiable but also non-modifiable risk factors to really ensure that the proper interventions are there and their patients are optimized for not just a safe, but an effective surgery as well. Absolutely. Robin, can you tell me where this optimization, optimization is taking place? Yeah, so for orthopedics today, we see the optimization actually happening in the hospital or the ASC setting before the PCP would be the person that would see them. But again, they don't usually come to the hospital anymore. So we see the optimization clinics led either by anesthesia, a hospitalist with an orthopedic focus, or sometimes uh, an orthopedic advanced practice provider. These are people who are very familiar with the underlying risk of the associated orthopedic surgeries and how the patient's acute or chronic comorbidities can impact the patient's outcome. So generally we see that these are the providers who are caring for the patient's medical condition preoperatively and postoperatively during this course of the hospitalization or ASC procedure. Uh, and, and in relation to ASCs, obviously within spine orthopedics, uh, also many other surgery areas as well, we're also seeing that increasing shift from outpatient to inpatient. But with this in mind, what do you see as the education needs of the patient as that shift continues to migrate towards outpatient settings? Yeah, so the shift is definitely taking place. So from the many, moving many of these inpatient procedures that we've done for years to the outpatient setting. So an excellent question because education is so important. Um, we used to have days uh, to take 
uh, care of these patients and make sure that they had um, the right education. But as our payers are requiring us to move them to the outpatient setting, now, you know, it's down to hours. So when we talk about education-related orthopedic and spine procedures, the most important thing to talk about is how to prepare the patient and or their family to go home and care for themselves. Again, this used to happen over the course of a period of time, but now we're, we've got to get this done and they're going home the day of surgery. So this is the time when nursing was there 24-7 for questions or concerns that the patient might have. But now they're really leaving right after they finish up in PACU. So the patients, they need to know how to manage their pain and swelling. They need to know how to manage nausea and vomiting. They need to know how to assess their wound and potentially do dressing changes. They need to understand how to prevent infections, really basic things such as proper hand washing. That's so very important. They need to understand all their meds that you know, we're going to ask them to take and ensure that they're taking them correctly. They need to understand that their meds, some of them may cause constipation. And what do they do if that occurs? They need to understand what to do to prevent complications. And I'll use examples of DBT and PE. And they need to know the signs and symptoms of these and what to do uh, to act immediately if that were to be the case. If it's spine surgery, they need to understand what to do if they have any issues with bowel or bladder function. They need to know how to care, how to get in and out of a car without harming themselves or the work that we just completed during their surgery. And this is so very important because it's the very first thing we're asking them to do now that they're leaving immediately. They need to understand the limitations and restrictions as well as the expectations for early mo mobilization because this will help decrease complications and get us to the desired outcomes. And so we really need them to know that. They need to understand how their comorbidities will impact the healing process and what they need to do to help manage those comorbid conditions. They need to understand how to utilize any equipment or DME if necessary. Examples like, you know, icing equipment, walkers, canes, braces, SCDs. And not only do we have to need to know that they know how to use them, but we have to make sure that they have the equipment at home because they're going to need to use it immediately. They'll need to understand things like rice. You know, we talk about that in nursing a lot, rest, ice, and elevation. That's going to be important for certain procedures. And then when can they take a shower? When do they need to call the doctor or seek medical attention? And they need, and then we, we need to know that the environment they're going home to is safe because we're trying to work to help avoid falls and what they might need to do if they were to fall. And we, we need to ensure that they understand the needs for fluids and good nutrition and how important that is to healing. They need to understand how to, how to coordinate care and how we're helping them do that, but that the impact of things like home health, physical therapy, occupational therapy, if they're needed, uh, how important that is. And then why seeing their PCP and their surgeon afterwards for follow-up appointments are so very important. So again, there's just a lot of stuff that they need to know. 
so this means we can't wait until the day of surgery to start this education. On the day of surgery, we're sedating them, we're giving them pain meds. It's not a good time for a patient to remember anything. So we have to start that education very early. We need to ensure that we're providing education for all types of learners, visual, auditory, hands-on learners. We need to have classes and sometimes it'll be live and sometimes it'll be webinars, but we need to have handouts and demonstrations and return demonstrations. We need to have videos so the patients and their caregivers can go back and re-watch them. And the content of all of this education needs to be presented in an understandable manner according to the patient's level of literacy. And we have to assess the patient's comprehension of the presented material. It's our duty to ensure that the patient and or their caregivers can actually provide the care that's necessary during this very critical time of recovery in a time when we would normally have been there and now we're not. So we're having to anticipate the patient's needs and ensure them that we're educating them accordingly so that we can get to that desired outcome from the surgery. So early education, we have to educate in different ways, and most importantly, make sure that they're comprehending what is needed to go home and take care of themselves. Again, not like the old days when we were keeping them and we had days to do this. We've got to ensure ahead of time that they're prepared uh, in advance so that they can go home and care for themselves the day of surgery. Uh, yeah, a lot of really valuable and important information to keep in mind, not just for the patient, but also for providers, especially when we think about that shift to, from inpatient to outpatient care and where surgeries will be taking place in the coming years. Robin, I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. It was great. And uh, hopefully we can be back together again talking more about um, some of these other areas in orthopedic surgery. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor, the Joint Commission. So listeners, you can also tune into any more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckerspodcast.com.